You tell him I'm coming. Tell him I'm fucking coming. How you doing, Ed? All right, are you? Now look, Squire, you're the governor here, I can see that. I'm on your manor now, so there's no need to get your niggers in a twist. Whatever this bollocks is that's going down between you and that slave Valentine, it's got nothing to do with me. I couldn't care less, all right, mate? Let me explain it. When I was in prison, second time, uh, no, tell a lie, third stretch. Yeah, third, third. There was this screw what really had it in for me, and that geezer was top of my list. Two years after I got sprung, I sees him in Honor Park. He's sitting on a bench feeding bloody pigeons. There was no one about. I could have gone up behind him and snapped his fucking neck. Wallop. But I left him. I could have nobbled him, but I didn't. Because what I thought I wanted wasn't what I wanted. What I thought I was thinking about was something else. I didn't give a toss. It didn't matter, see? This burke on the bench wasn't worth my time. It meant sod all in the end. Because you've got to make a choice. When to do something and when to let it go. When it matters and when it don't. Bide your time. That's what prison teaches you, if nothing else. Bide your time and everything becomes clear. And you can act accordingly. Hey folks, this is Max. Sorry to interrupt the brilliance you're about to hear. Last week, during the episode where we covered the Batman, Jason or I, probably Jason because this is an error, said that we were going to be doing Duel this week. But that's not right. Actually, the rotation is the Limey, then Duel. So Duel will be out next week. And today we're doing the Limey. And that's all I got. Uh, sorry Jason made this terrible, uh, unfor unfortunate error. And uh, I'll, I'll work with him to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Recording in progress. You don't film the picture. So after a while, you hadn't moved, and I was like, oh, he's frozen. I'm not really that interesting. Yeah, it goes well. It's, uh, it's going to be odd talking about movie sober. Yeah, I've been thinking that, so I'm not. <laughs> and I'll wait for you to unfreeze. But, but I theorize that everything that you're saying is getting recorded. Yes, yes, I think so. I think so. And because um, I, I think it's on my end. And I'm saying brilliant things. I I was I was I was totally locked into what you were saying. Now where do we leave off? Hello and welcome to Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Jason. And I'm Max. And this week we're gonna be reviewing 1999's crime thriller The Limey, directed by Steven Soderbergh, starring Terrence Stamp, Peter Fonda, Leslie Ann Warren, Luis Guzman, Barry Newman. Some of these other actors aren't really too prominent in the film, but I'm gonna list a few of them until I get to Jennifer. Uh Joe Delisa. Andro as a Uncle John, I guess it's an enforcer, and Nikki Cat as Stacy, Amelia Hein Heinlein as Adara, and Melissa George as Jennifer. So that's the main cast, and and not even uh, some of those guys aren't even going to be the main cast, I don't think. But directed by Steven Soderbergh, not exactly a sequel to a 1960s film, but it uses a lot of of footage from a Ken Loach film, Ken Loach's first film, which I think was called Poor Cow, for some flashback scenes of Terrence Stamp and his daughter in, in, in some of the scenes in this movie. So uh, I don't know what Poor Cow was about. I think it was about a thief played by Terrence Stamp. Uh, so that adds that adds some depth to the film. They didn't have to do anything weird because computer uh, aging uh, wasn't a thing that they could do. Go ahead, Jason, you got something? Well, but, no, but it's very interesting because I had to think about that uh, because actually, um, I, I can't remember when I... So I had first seen this film, Max and I watched it together uh, 20 years ago at least, and, and I... I remember liking it, but I don't remember much. I didn't remember much else. And seeing those flashback scenes, I, I squinted at the screen. I was like, well, that's, that's definitely Terrence Stamp. Yeah. It looks just like he did when he was younger. How did they do that? And <laughs> I, I assumed that it had to have been some kind of archival footage. Yeah. So well done that it 
it it doesn't look like that it's something spliced from something else. No, it yeah, it right. Almost, it, it almost reads like we're seeing some kind of sequel, and I don't know that this functions very well as a sequel. I've never seen Poor Cow, but it worked. Th- this old footage from this older film works very well as the flashbacks of Terrence Stamp with his daughter in yes. this film. So, how do you describe the liming? If you watch the trailer for the liming, what you're going to see from the trailer, you're going to say, "Oh." I've seen this movie before. This is a guy trying to find out what's happened to his daughter and he's he's going to go deal with the people who did something to his daughter. Now, when said that way, I haven't sold the movie, really. Uh, this is like, it's an old story. I mean, that's why they keep making it. It's a popular story, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty easy story to tell. So when I went and saw this and when I, maybe Jason had the same experience, we were watching it to see kind of a Terrence Stamp thriller. Yeah. You know, crime thriller. We figured they would. this would be a very, I, this is my this was my approach to the film. This was going to be a very familiar story. We've seen it a hundred times, but you know, it's going to be top notch acting. It's going to be great. This film, that revenge plot is there. Yeah. But the way the story tells, the way this movie tells that story, the way Steven Soderbergh tells that story was so refreshing to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, telegraphing my verdict a little bit here that I, I, I was amazed by this movie 20 years ago. I was amazed a couple of weeks ago when I watched it. And I was amazed again when I watched it today, just to kind of brush up on the film, because this is such an unconventional telling of that story. It's very ironic and it sort of plays with the idea of memory. Yes. And, and this film almost functions as a noir poem. Would you agree with that? I, I, I think so. I think anybody that watches this movie when watching it has to decide what, what the film is actually about. I don't think that the revenge, the content of the revenge storyline is the primary theme, is the primary thematic material of the movie. Definitely, it it, it, it acts as a, a noir kind of film. It's not black and white like a, like a true noir film would be. But a lot of the lighting struck me in, as kind of being very much in that kind of noir feel. It plays with shadow. It plays with light and shadow very well. Yes. It plays with the California setting. It plays with LA really well, I think. I totally agree. Totally. Um, and the film also functions kind of as a skewer to a certain kind of uh, baby boomer, 60s romance kind of thing. And our three, I guess, I guess maybe our three protagonists are all of the same age. They're all about in their 60s there but the Terrence Stamp character Wilson my name is Wilson and Peter Fonda and his lawyer I think those are the people I'm going to say are the our protagonists and antagonists those are our main right. his, head of secu- his head of security is, head of security right right that's right. how he's always referred to yeah although, yeah although I guess it's but it was supposed to be implied that the two of them have been best friends for decades yes and Avery is his name yeah kind of just worked his way up to that role. Yeah. But he, he's been going around with this this music producer, Terry Valentine, and taking care of him for decades, probably since 1966. Exactly, exactly. And so the thing is, all these guys are from that era, but Wilson's experience of the 60s was very different from Valentine's and Avery's, I think, you know. <laughs> Though Avery's is probably a little closer to Wilson's. Avery, I get the sense that Avery is sort of what they would have called a Mustang 
in military terms, a guy who started out enlisted and then ended up in the officer corps, right? But Avery right. used to be a street level thug, I think. Yeah. He's, he's a fixer, right? Yeah. And and so, I mean, he, he's gone around cleaning up after Peter Fonda. That's the Peter Valentine, uh, Terry Valentine's character. He's been cleaning up this guy's messes for years and it's made him rich. They're both rich by this point. But anyway, yeah. I'm, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But, but I think those are the main elements. Those are the main, I guess, the drivers of the story. But the film plays very ironically with that 60s baby boomer kind of thing. But it also deals kind of honestly with it, too. And we'll get to that in a minute, because Terry Valentine is is played by Peter Fonda, who I didn't really think of much of as an actor until I saw this film. I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with you on this. And he plays Terry Valentine as a guy who is, you know, most of the time actually probably pretty nice and also yeah. kind of sees sort of the sham of his life a little bit. Yeah. Don't you think that? Like, yeah. we'll, we'll get to it in a bit, but he has this really key conversation with his new girlfriend. That, that's exactly where I was going to go, yeah. Yeah, and, and and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but to lead into the story, guys, uh, Wilson has come from... Well, hold on, let me back up a little bit. The film starts out, I think, with this mean-looking, skull-like portrait of Terrence Stamp in an airplane. And this is one of the things that I think the film does really well because this goes to the poetry of the movie. So this film is not told like any crime thriller you're likely to have seen because in the early stages of the storytelling, it's kind of muddled. Uh, I don't don't mean in terms of the, the telling of the story. That's crisp. This film is 88 minutes of the crispest storytelling I've seen in years. But what I mean to say is it's muddled in the way he's remembering it. We don't get that the the beginning of the movie is him remembering the events of the entire film. So when we're seeing the early parts of the film, this is him remembering the early part of the quote-unquote adventure. And so sometimes he's talking to people and the conversation will start like in the morning, say, in a well-lit area, but then it'll cut to a different area where they're having the same conversation. But it's it's almost like he's remembering, did 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 we talk about that at the picnic or did we talk about that at dinner? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so so the film tightens up as it gets closer and closer to that airplane ride. It gets less choppy that way, right? But but I, and I don't think I noticed this when we watched it 20 years ago. I was probably really drunk. So I just thought they were just doing that as a way to be poetic. But what, what it also functions as is a, as, as a guy remembering sort of recent events, but not necessarily as they exactly happened, right? Did, did you yeah. get that when you watched it this time? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the film is definitely um, non-linear. This is, uh, there are many films that are non-linear, but uh, what makes uh, The Limey, and there are other films like this, but what makes The Limey different from something like Pulp Fiction or Citizen Kane, which are also out of sequence, is that Citizen Kane and Pulp Fiction definitely give us events that happen out of sequence, but the events are still shot as a conventional scene. Yeah. Whereas the film is more um, a bird's eye view of the human imagination and the per- the person who had the experience and how they're kind of reconstructing it, which is not even not because uh, when we re- when we remember a moment in our life, we don't take we don't go from the very beginning and go to the very end. We pick little little pockets, little little aspects of what happened, and we and we think about that, and then oh, but then this thing happened over here, and that's what our imagination does. That's just now. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we're only remembering it piecemeal. No. That's how human imagination works. But we do, or at least I do, I think we all do, we rehearse things, you know, in our mind at different times. And I think that this is a, an attempt to, to give that to us in a cinematic way. What this film does... And these these early scenes, and it will do it throughout, is uh, Steven Soderbergh channeling the uh, French New Wave. Okay. This, is a, this is a technique that was indeed developed, uh, I think, by uh, Jean-Luc Godard, Godard, or Goddard, who was the inventor or the creator of the French New Wave. He made a film in 1960 called Breathless, which is, well, that's the, that's the English title. It's a French film that uses a lot of the same, not exactly the same, but uh, some similar methods. There are scenes in that movie I, I've seen Breathless, and there are scenes in that movie where you will have, and and the main character uh, is a bit of a thief, if memory serves. In Breathless, yeah, and he has this girlfriend, and there's this scene where they're in the car, or in this car, and they're they're kind of flirting with each other and just having a conversation. But the dialogue, like they'll start a conversation, and then there will be a cut to them kissing, but the conversation is still going on over the kissing. Then you'll have a cut to them and one. One of them is looking over into the distance and yet the conversation is still going on yes and so and so there's kind of this kind of this idea that we're being given snapshots of the experience of the character and also snapshots of either an either a conversation uh, and and that's what you're describing is that in this case he's remembering conversations he may not be putting them in the right place yeah so um i i i have read that that soderbergh was a, a big fan of the uh french new wave it began in the 60s and it's the same style it show it shines through here and he is he's really perfected it in this so soderbergh is perfected in this movie i i was constantly amazed at the way the film plays and i, I mean i can't even hide that i can't conceal that that view that I have. Sometimes Jason and I play our verdicts pretty close to the chest, but it's hard with this film to not just start out right away with talking about its strong points, because if you just talk about the story, it's, you know, as you said, it tells the story, it tells a very linear story in this in the French New Wave way, right? Because it is almost in sequence. Not quite, but right. but, but it is told as if it's a human memory, and what I want to say about that audience is that, like, some people used to conceive that the human memory was like a VA VHS tape or a audio tape, a cassette tape, but a lot of you guys don't know what that is because this is an ancient technology. But but that's not how human memory works. Human memory is stored in different parts of the brain, and you know different neurons carry different messages. And so you're you're always kind of piecing together a memory, and it's yes. and and your memory is never exactly how it really happened, right? So when you're talking about things or remembering things, your brain is doing the best to represent the, the, those events, you know, but it, it can't do it perfectly, you know? And so what I, what I like about this film and, and I guess what I, what I would, what I would admire about the inside of the new wave, the French new wave is that it, there's a way to tell that story of kind of a, almost an accurate way in which human minds reconceptualize their past. Right. Yeah. Like I said, the, the, the film is interesting because it, the that kind of choppy and I, it's not an accurate term that kind of a memory editing titans as the film gets closer to present time right where he's well, and, and so remembering I, I, things more clearly because they just happened recently i think 
If I'm not mistaken, in the world of literature, this would have been James Joyce originally would have tried to do the stream of consciousness. And then in American literature, William Faulkner in The Sound and the Fury, where there was definitely this attempt to kind of write in, in, a, in what was called a stream of consciousness, you know, as, as they occur in human experience, which is what you're describing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this film sort of does that. Um, um, the other thing that I, I noticed about this film is even though it's kind of a dark, noirish kind of plot, guys trying to find out what happened to his dead child, um, this film is really funny. It's it's ironic. It's, it's sometimes it's laugh out loud funny, like some of the things that happen in this film. And the other thing I want to kind of talk about and probably bring this up through when we discuss certain scenes is I look to see if this was formerly an Elmore Leonard crime novel because some of the dialogue is so fucking every man and funny um that i was just like did elmore leonard have a hand in the script or because it's just um uh, to, to to highlight one of the one of the things that happens uh wilson picks up this friend who was a friend of his daughter's in the, in the movie um uh, before he gets to la uh she had this life in la but he her friend is helping him navigate la and they're at this rich guy's house on this pool that's on stilts and his friend says, oh, this is, you know, if you have a house like this, if you have the money to buy a house like this, you buy it. And Wilson's like, yeah, I guess you do. And he's like, look, man, you could see the sea if you could see it. <laughs> you know? and, and there's just little lines like that, that like, uh, and I, I just really like it. Um, um, well, uh, just to give you some, um, I, I uh, so listeners, I'm, I'm actually, uh, Max doesn't know this. I actually found um, some information about a the the audio commentary that the screenwriter Lem Dobbs and Steven Soderbergh did together. Okay. And there's a lot of interesting information about the film and the screenplay and the connection between the two or lack thereof, according okay. to Lem Dobbs. And Lem Dobbs was or is, he's still around, but um, he had written this screenplay and he had kind of shopped it around for a couple of years. So he didn't write this for Soderbergh and and uh, Artisan Entertainment. Like this was a screenplay that was, he had written and that was his baby. And then Soderbergh turned it into a film. And and you just mentioned that you felt that a lot of the writing was very much of that, that kind of noir er, uh, uh, era, mm -hmm. not in Europe. Well, Lem Dobbs, that, that's, Lem Dobbs is not the writer's real name. Uh, he's a, a, a British-American screenwriter, and um, he, uh, he he chose a pen name, and the, the name Dobbs was the name of the character of Humphrey Bogart in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. What? Yeah, so, so he was very much into that, or I would have to assume was very much into that era, and I think he fancied he was writing a noir film. Well, I, you know, th there are so many kinds of beats like that, and the, the one of the things that I've always kind of found as a hallmark of noir audience, I haven't brought this up before. One of my favorite things to do is read Dashiell Hammett. And there's a leanness to noir storytelling, to noir crime storytelling, where you don't really get to know. We don't get a lot of backstory on these people. I mean, this is actually has, is a little more backstory heavy than sometimes you get in a noir uh, film. A lot of times things are told with action or just hints. And they do that a little bit here. But but there's so much that's that that gets done with like this brisk, crisp, punchy dialogue that so much character development gets done and you don't even realize it's happening as a viewer. It's just kind of permeating you, right? We, we, yeah. we, don't, we, don't, we don't get a lot of like Terry Valentine's backstory. We, right. we get enough of it, but 
but we know it. But we know it. But we know it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because he gives us enough dialogue to kind of convey who he is to us. And in fact, the film is is almost self-referential a little bit because there's a moment where the other thing that, that the limey does a lot, that is to say Wilson, is he speaks in Cockney slang all the time. Yeah. And Terrence Stamp looks like he had a blast doing this. But his friend, uh, gosh, let me look at, what's, I can't remember his friend's name. Friend Ed, played by Louis Guzman, who's a great character actor you guys you guys he's been in everything you guys have seen him but he asked leslie ann warren who is delightful in this film as as not exactly the love interest but all the almost love interest for wilson he says do you understand anything that this guy says and she says no but i know what he means yeah that's that's sort of the way this film functions right right i i so i I find myself really being delighted by the way this film almost effortlessly with a minimal amount of dialogue and exposition tells us everything we need to know. And that's like, that's the heart of a noir film, right? I don't know if you guys, if you guys have read something like the uh, Dashiell Hammett's The Red Harvest or watched David Mamet is actually a master of this as well. A lot of David Mamet movies engage in this kind of minimalist storytelling that that manages to do a lot of heavy lifting even though you know you don't get like you don't get like the a-team blurb in 1984 these guys you know you don't get you don't get like a you don't get a title scroll you don't get any of that you just have to get it from how these people behave and what they say and how they say it and so you know that's i i think that this film is doing the french new wave it's doing film noir it's doing that kind of crime fiction that writers like john houston uh dashiell hammett you know, from the tr- Treasure of the Sierra Madre, I, I think that Dash, uh, John Houston knew this this genre really well. Yes, yes. Um, was a master of it, in fact, because you mentioned, uh, audience, sorry, I'm going to sidetrack here. Jason just mentioned the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which dire- was directed by John Houston, right? Yes. He also directed maybe the best noir adaptation in history, which was the Maltese Falcon. Yes. And, and so... So, so it's a rich tradition that, that Soderbergh is drawing on and, and, and doing perfectly here. Which brings us to the film. How do you want to start us off, Jason? Do you have anything you want to say exactly here? Well, you know, I mean, already I've kind of started to kind of intersperse it as we go. Because actually, most of, most of the information that I found was this, this recounting of this argument between Soderbergh and, um, uh, and, and, and the screenwriter, Lem Dobbs. Okay. And how Lem Dobbs, the screenwriter, I, I already said this, that he had kind of he wrote this and then and then kind of chopped it around i don't i don't want to say to this day but at least when they did the commentary lem dobbs was not necessarily happy with steven soderbergh's direction really yeah and based on what you just said max and i agree with everything that you just said that it sounds like that let that it was steven soderbergh who wanted to make it into a noir film because lem dobbs felt that soderbergh lem dobbs felt that soder that steven soderbergh was was, did not pay enough attention to character development in this film. Oh, I now, well, well, hold on, because actually, but what that what that almost suggests to me is that Soderbergh understood more about uh, about the noir style than Dobbs actually did. I think that's right because I disagree with Dobbs. I think this is a nice script, and no, I I think I'm on I think I'm on Team Soderbergh. Yeah, because Soderbergh's direction allows, as as you're saying, allows the dialogue to kind of do the heavy lift 
uplifting to use your language. And it, I, I don't know if Dobbs is just kind of the, um, you know, the, the bitter artist that just, you know, he's just thinking about what's in his head yeah, and, and is just not really satisfied with it. But I, I kind of agree with you. And actually what I started to say earlier before we started talking about the plot, because you did talk about the first scene about how Terry Valentine, I feel like I know his history. Oh, I, I feel like I know everything about Terry Valentine. For, for two reasons. One, because a viewer of this film does not come into this without knowing L.A., the 60s, all of that. Like, like you start with that. You, you bring that to the film yourself. But then you get these little moments, these little lines that, that uh, and we haven't rehearsed any of these lines yet, but I know they're coming, where we get we get just, just a one sentence, one or two sentences about him, in which it's very easy 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 for us to say oh i could i could write a prequel about this guy's life right oh absolutely absolutely and the other thing too by picking the actors that soderberg picked and by by leaning on this earlier film poor cow for his back the flashbacks Soderbergh economically gives us the character backstories the way that, that he builds Terry Valentine though is even more clever by playing easy rider it's so uh, no no I, I have to I have to cut you off I'm sorry because uh, this is connected to what you're about to say please do go Soderbergh did not want Peter Fonda oh really because he felt Peter Fonda was too stoic which the Fondas right? yeah yeah well like I would have agreed with him until I saw his movie with Peter Fonda so he had I, I guess guess he had like a, a lunch with him to talk about the film because Fonda had been recommended to him and he was skeptical. He, he liked him. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. So they had lunch and it was during the lunch that he realized just how uh, charming and likable Peter Fonda was. Yes. And that, he, you know, if he could convey that, that he would be the absolute perfect performer for this role. Well, and, but, but so, so audience, audience, some of our audience may be younger listeners and, uh, or, and so Peter Fonda was in one of the most iconic 60s counterculture movies in history, right? Which was Easy Rider. He directed it. Did he? Okay. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, so. I don't know. But I gotta look it up now. It, it, it was either him or Hopper. But uh, well, yeah, so Jason says Hopper because we're good friends. We were good friends with Dennis Hopper, uh, <laughs> the iconic 60s counterculture actor, the pharmacist of Apocalypse Now. But Peter Fonda stars in, in Easy Rider, co wrote it with Dennis Hopper, produced it, and Hopper directed it. So okay, was- okay, okay. So many great actors in, in Easy Rider. Not actually a favorite film of mine. I, I know it's an iconic film, but I I, it never really sang to me, but oh, no, no, I, I just real quick, real quick. We pro- just linger for one second with me sure. because these are two generation X film critics talking. When I first saw easy rider, I thought I was going to love it and I hated it. I <laughs> was terrible. And I realized that if I could pick a movie that was, that was strictly generational, that, that, that was like, it's, it's almost like that you had to be there movie. It would be easy rider. I, I mean, I've only seen it once. I might change my mind now. I actually love the 60s. I love the music. But when I saw it, I I really, it was a head scratcher to me. And I, I kind of felt like that that is a baby boomer. Well, it's a cultural moment, isn't it? It, it is. I'm not taking that away from it. But but it is very of its moment. And and that's sort of Terry Valentine's position on the 60s. I, I love, we'll get to that. I love yeah. But, yeah. but so, 
So there's a, there's a, they play easy. He's an easy writer. They play that song. So what we know about Terry Valentine audience is this. He was, he's a hotshot record producer and he turned the sixties into something he could sell. Yes. That's what we get. And whatever romance or cultural connection he had with the 60s is fairly long gone he's turned it into a commodity it's la yeah absolutely la and that whatever that that free love moment was he's let that ethos go and now he's a guy who likes to live in a house that overlooks la with a pool that overlooks la and he likes to drive fancy cars as does his 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 fixer and until he'll he'll go to some levels to to protect that and to 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 do that but that's terry valentine he was once a guy of the 60s who now sells the 60s yeah so i want to defend soderbergh from dobbs here for a second soderbergh understood I think that we've seen this story a hundred thousand times and we don't need a lot of the backstory because like Spider-Man, like Superman, like Hercules, like fill in your, your culturally relevant myth, right? We already know it, right? So we don't need a lot of exposition to give us backstory. I don't think. And so, so you can, like, I think that it's a marvel that Soderbergh said, and now he didn't obviously say this, but at some point he said, 88 minutes is fine. That's how long this movie is, audience. Less than an hour and a half. Less than an hour and a half. And it feels like a feast of a film. Which, by the way, was the average length of films in Hollywood's golden age. Was it really? Yeah, about an hour and a half. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm what what you just said was um, 100%. 100%. The opening shot is this mean-looking guy in Terrence Stamp. I didn't realize how mean... He doesn't look mean in a lot of his films, but he actually kind of looks hard in this movie. Yeah. You know, he looks regal in Superman. You know, he doesn't... Yes. Necessarily, he can be threatening in Superman, but in this, he, he can be nice in this film, but he also seems like kind of a hard-ass sometimes. But, so the film opens, he comes to L.A., he's trying to figure out what happened to his daughter... He was sent, Wilson was sent a letter from this Ed about what happened to his daughter. Now, the press, uh, as far as anybody knows, she died in a traffic accident. Right. And Wilson doesn't think that. Parents are unlikely to think that, you know, they're not likely to think that their kids died of some error, unless it's pretty obvious, unless there's some some real evidence of that. He doesn't buy that she died in a traffic accident, that she was drunk or any of that stuff. But there's not a lot of evidence because the car burned up. And so, so when he arrives in LA, he goes to meet his daughter, his daughter's friend. And we don't know much about his daughter, except that she was somebody capable of inspiring really loyal friendships. Yeah. You know, like this is a friend from her acting class. (laughs) This is such an LA thing, right? Oh, she's in my acting class. Um, Oh, acting class. Uh, Wilson kind of seems amused by that. And this guy, Ed, basically gives Wilson the rundown of who was involved in her life. So who's this guy she was shacked up with? And Ed, Ed has all the Ed has all the dirt. Ed doesn't want to get involved. Right. And Ed tries to kind of hide who he is a little bit from Wilson. And he's like, I don't know what you think. Um, I don't I don't know who you think I am. And and Wilson sees right through Ed right away. He's like, I, I don't think you guys have ink 
doing the doing the Queen's service, you know, you know, indicating yeah. he knows that Ed has been in prison. Ed does not want to go back to prison. But we know everything we need to know about Jenny Wilson, Ed, Wilson's daughter, because Ed does get involved. Yeah. Ed was a really good friend of hers. And that's all he was. Yeah. You know, Ed's this down to earth guy who wants to be part of that scene that Terry Valentine is a part of. Ed wants to be an actor. Ed has dreams. We get all that about Ed, right? Right. But but he's also, you know, but he's close enough to his roots that he can help Wilson out. He's close enough to his, I mean, we get the sense that Ed has done his time. He doesn't want to go back to jail, but he's still kind of connected to the, to some of the LA's less savory elements. Yeah. And he is willing to help Wilson, to guide Wilson through this because Wilson is, Wilson just got out of prison. We know that he got out of prison recently and he's off to LA to take care of some business, but he does, he needs a guide. And Ed gets Wilson his guns and points Wilson into the, Ed doesn't think that she died in an accident either. He doesn't want to say that. Because like I said, Ed doesn't want to get involved. Ed, Ed doesn't want to go back to jail. <laughs> Right. And but Ed does think that there's there's a confrontation that might have gotten Jenny killed. Yes. Uh, Jenny seems to have keyed into the fact that her boyfriend, Terry Valentine, was getting into something that he shouldn't be getting into. And she had a desire that to not be involved with the criminal element. Right. We'll, we'll find that out later on. But so she confronts some people that she thinks her boyfriend, Terry Valentine, is involved with. And Ed is really impressed with how tough she seems. And we don't see this confrontation. He just tells us about it. He tells Wilson. Right. And, and he's like, I felt that she was kind of protecting me in this moment, you know. And we get one of our, my one of my favorite Ed moments when when uh, when when Wilson says, well, well, tell me about Terry. And he's like, well, you know, he was this big shot. You know, he he was always nice to her. And she was like, uh, you know, I met him a few times, but it was like he looked right through me. He didn't even see me. And he was like, you know, I didn't know what she saw in him. She said she he. <laughs> He was like, she said she just loved his smile. He's like, that motherfucker never smiled at me. So, but anyway, I, I love Ed. I, I love that Ed was mad that, that Valentine never smiled at him. That motherfucker never smiled at me. But Ed doesn't <laughs> like Terry. And Ed is kind of, I think Ed thinks that she was killed too. Yeah. What happens, we, we find out that Jenny went down to some bad part of LA and confronted some people that she thought Terry was involved with. And so Wilson decides he's going to go ask these guys some questions. Yes. And Wilson is a hard guy and he, he just kind of like sneaks in and starts asking questions he asks he asks the head of this little uh, he shocks the guy by being like uh uh by just showing up in in their in their place of business and he wants to know about how they're involved with terry valentine terry goes in talks i'm sorry wilson goes and talks to terry's underworld associates these guys are all really good at being uh, these actors are great character actors they're all pretty good at being low lives uh, low lives but not professionals not professionals because no. because it's very obvious that they're there's bad things happening and there's a guy with a broom and he's like, oh, it's like he notices that the boss is kind of, you know, having some trouble, but he kind of, rather than rush to the rescue, he's like, uh, hey, 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 guys, like, you know, he tries to get the other guys together. So you get the sense that these guys are hired for their muscle, but they're not necessarily used to this. The only professional criminal in the movie is Wilson. Yeah. Well, um, maybe. Uh, well, there will be a hitman later, but Avery has some experience. Avery has some experience, but. Wilson just walks into this area. I mean, he sneaks right in in broad daylight. Nobody, nobody accosts him. The first moment the boss sees him, he's shocked because who the fuck 
fuck are you? And yeah. my name's Wilson. <laughs> exactly. And uh, he's like, uh, do you know Terry Valentine? And the guy doesn't know Terry Valentine. So he says, and then like Terry, I'm sorry, Wilson sees the Rolodex and he just starts reaching in to take, to, to like flip through it to find out where Terry Valentine lives and just, or to see if his name's in the Rolodex. Audience. Some younger viewers might not know what a Rolodex is, but it was a was it was a device that had little cards on a roller that had names and addresses and phone numbers of people you might want to call because you didn't have a, a phone that carried everything in, in it. And so he finds he, he just starts flipping through it because he doesn't care about this guy because this guy doesn't matter to him. And the guy tries to say something to him, and Wilson just shoves his head into the desk and continues to flip through the Rolodex, and he pulls out the card that he wants, and it's at that point where some some of this guy's enforcers come running in and Wilson gets accosted. Now, I didn't realize necessarily what Wilson w- had done. Wilson, in associating with Ed, he gets some guns underground. He gets some guns under, uh, you know, on in the underground of L.A. And he gets uh, a very large revolver, uh, a revolver which I actually, a model of a revolver which I own, actually, which is a Smith & Wesson model 686 plus, I think is what it is, which is a 357. And it's, uh, I think he's got the three inch barrel it's a quite a large and hard to miss firearm but he also has like a small gun that he gets from these guys and when wilson gets accosted by this guy's henchman what they find is the big smith and wesson model 686 and they take that and they don't look anywhere else because what else would anybody carry right right but he's got like this little this little auto, semi-automatic that they just totally missed. Going back to the fact that these guys are not professionals. Right. I think that Wilson might have planned, he might, he might have thought he was going to get accosted, right? Yeah. And so they have this, uh, they kind of make fun of him. They beat him up a little bit and they throw him out of the building. And they're like, stay out of here. Don't ever come back. Oh, big bad gun, big scary guy. And then they walk back and they walk away and they're like, I just dare you to come back. Come back, come trespass, these 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 dummies say. And Wilson picks up, picks himself up off the ground and does exactly that. He goes back in, and this is a brilliant moment of the movie. We don't see any of the confrontation that happens. We just hear people screaming. We hear gunshots. We see we see that guy who is pushing the broom run away. And we get one of the most iconic moments in the film, which I'll probably cut in, but it's Wilson coming out and saying, yelling at this guy, you. Tell him I'm coming! You tell him I'm fucking coming! And it's Terrence Stamp being amazing. The, this scene amazed me 20 years ago, and it amazed me today. Lem Dobbs, so you know, was very irritated that Soderbergh was praised for this moment because it was in the script. Oh. And and uh, and when I say that, I mean what I assumed he meant is that he wrote it. That you know, it's like stage instructions. You know, okay. You know, you don't see the actual shooting. You just see the warehouse. Bang, 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 and. So I guess Soderbergh got a lot of credit for that as a director and Dobbs was kind of irritated by that because he, but I do give you credit that you shot it the way I wrote it. (laughs) Well, you know, I think that that was daring. It was great writing, but it was also daring. It was, it was, it goes back to that composure that Soderbergh has and the kind of faith he had in the script, I think, because a lot of other directors would have said, well, we've got to show the whatever action happens. Right. And some of the action that happens in this film is so, 
understated, you know, that it almost it, it almost adds to the to the kind of intensity of it and, right. and the shockingness of violence, actually. And so we also get like some of the maybe memory co- compositions of Terry Valentine, because right after that scene where we get like this iconic image of Terrence Stamp being you tell him I'm fucking coming, we get the voiceover. So we get Terry Valentine being Terry Valentine, super cool record producer. But over that over that image, we get tell him I'm fucking coming. What does that mean? You know? Right. Yeah. And, and then and then the, and then the movie kind of backs up to the moments before he got that news. Right. Right. And. And so, so now we're kind of seeing some things from Terry Valentine's perspective because these were his associates. We don't really know much about how Terry is associated with these people. Avery, his enforcer, his protector, his cleaner, his fixer, is explaining to him what happened. And and Terry's just like, what's this mean? And 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 Avery's like, look, doesn't matter. Those guys are dead. This is good. Whatever they were into, whatever deal you made with them that got you out of the financial pinch you were in, that you got the benefit. They're dead. They can never talk about their relationship with you. Right. There's no connection to you with these people. Avery is really kind of cold about this. It's kind of interesting. It's, you know, like I said, he's he's a little more street level than I think Terry Valentine ever necessarily was. But he's sort of like, this is good news. This is great for us. And Terry Valentine is like, tell him I'm coming. What does that mean? And one of the things I really like about what Avery says is, well, these were bad people. They were just messing with worse people. That's all this is. Terry's a little hung up on like, tell him I'm coming. What's that mean? And I was like, doesn't matter. And it's only later that they realize that maybe the him was him, Terry Valentine. The next person, the next person in the cast we meet is, is the acting coach, the drama teacher who was, we we also know everything we need to know about her. She was once kind of a successful daytime soap actress, but her star never got beyond that. And now she teaches acting and she probably lives pretty comfortably on the royalties from that show. I mean, she's comfortable. We get the sense, right? And we learned that it was her who told Lewis to write who told Ed to write Wilson. Yeah. And she doesn't like Wilson exactly. She doesn't hate him, but she sort of thinks that because she knows all the backstory because she was good friends with Jenny Wilson too. And when they were when they were kind of talking to each other about their lives, Jenny said, "Well, my father is gone," and then explained that what I mean is he's in prison. <laughs> and and when Wilson meets her, this is a, one of those kind of noir scenes where he just shows up at her door and she sees him through the bars that protect her house, right? Uh, so she has like this she, she has this nice little LA bungalow but her doors are kind of blocked with bars which is kind of a thing out west I notice I see a lot of I, I've stayed in a lot of houses with friends in New Mexico and there are a lot of bars like that over their doors okay some more worry about crime I guess than than necessarily here in the in in the northeast or in the midwest but but she was like a well, you know, you weren't here for Jenny. You know, what were you doing? You know, and he was like, well, it's the bars. One of the things that Wilson really enjoys is kind of speaking in this slang, uh, Cockney slang and prison slang. But she's she's a little mad that he hasn't been in Jenny's life because uh, he's been in prison so much, right? Uh, should we at least state Leslie Ann Warren's most important claim to fame? Well, let's make sure that I know. With it. What is Leslie Ann Warren's most important claim to fame? Well, I, I mean, uh, aside from uh, being married to John Peters at one point, which uh, probably would have fit in very well uh, into a Kevin Smith uh, monologue. She was Miss Scarlet in Clue. She's so good in Clue. (laughs) 
I'm glad you brought that up. Leslie Ann Warren is an amazing comedic actress, but she's really good in this as a as kind of a straight yes uh, straight role. I uh, I forgot she was in the film, and I forgot, <laughs> I, I forgot how good she was in this. She's amazing in this movie. Yeah, well, everybody is quite honest, but but she gives Wilson a hard time, and she also doesn't exactly want to get involved because she sort of knows why he's there, which is to settle a score, and she doesn't she doesn't see much benefit in his mission. I think it's not going to change anything whatever happened to Ginny nothing Wilson does is going to change that right and I get the sense too that she's she's a little worried that she's going to like Wilson as much as she liked Ginny okay he's a charming guy from the from from the moment she meets him yeah and, and he, she's annoyed that he just showed up on her doorstep right right and she says well you call me when you want to you call me and tell me you're coming over and he does and then they kind of hit it off they hit it off right away like there's almost right. a moment where like you get the sense that this character Leslie Ann Warren character and i can't remember what uh her character's name is off the top of my head here elaine is almost like a mother figure to jenny oh yeah okay and he and she and wilson hit it off almost almost immediately and she gives a little bit of backstory but her role in this is just to be a friend she's not really part of the caper to get terry right uh ed is much to his chagrin so so after after we get this little vignette uh uh of backstory and dialogue uh and sort of explaining about who uh, explaining the kind of dynamic that Wilson had with his daughter, Jenny, uh, and kind of him learning more about Jenny's life in LA. After that, he decides he needs to go pay a visit to Terry Valentine, whose address he conveniently has from his Rolodex card that he swiped from, from the, the dead guys. The next shot I think we get is Ed at his door and he's staring at Wilson and Wilson hasn't said anything yet, but Ed says, man, whatever you got to do, you got to go do something. You better go do it. And it's very clear that Ed, by that he means you need to go and leave me out of it. But in the next scene, he's in the car with Wilson outside of Terry Valentine's house. The the lives that Wilson and Terry Valentine have had, the differences in those lives are illustrated in the way they're scoping out Terry Valentine's place. And Wilson thinks that all the valets are like bodyguards. Wilson had never seen valets before. He thinks they're a bunch of bodyguards. He's like, it's got a fucking house guard or something. And Ed is like, oh, shit. Ed's now even more scared. And he's like, oh, no, those are valets. They park the cars. They must have a party going on. And 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 Wilson says, oh, there's a party. And Ed says, yeah, yeah, you know, people come from all over, you know. And then Wilson just says, well, let's go. And they drive up to the party, you know. And they kind of capitalize on L.A., on some kind of that, that L.A. culture of like everybody's, you know, kind of hobnobbing and handshaking and flesh pressing. Yeah. And, and so like. Yeah, the, nobody knows who these guys are, but nobody knows who half the people at this party are either, right? Right. They're kind of casing the joint, and Ed's really happy because he's getting all these like hors d'oeuvres, and it's kind of funny. Of course, Wilson baffles him with more of his uh, slang when he's like, I'm going to go have a butcher's around the house, and Ed's like, what? Butcher's, butcher's hook, look. I don't understand British slang at all. Hey, gang, this is Max. You've no doubt already noticed that this is just part one of the Limey discussion. There's a few reasons for that. We had to re- we had enormous technical difficulties uh, while we were recording, so we had to record this in two sessions. Both of our recordings and both of our discussions were quite long, so I've decided to just break it up into two episodes rather than dump a four-hour episode on the liner. As such, obviously you get part one today, and next week we'll do part two on Thursday. Next Thursday, that is. And that's all I got, really. Sorry about that. Hope you're enjoying the conversation. We're enjoying talking about the film. Uh, we hope you, you, you listeners are enjoying uh, 
the hearing of this conversation. Until next time, you can reach me on Twitter at the Supper Test, or you can email me at lordmovies39 at gmail.com. Share us on Twitter, Facebook, wherever it is you share things on the shareable social media platforms that you love the most. Until then, we shall see you next week with part two of our discussion of The Lion. Bye!
you have to be a real fan to spot every piece of the fan service. I was watching it and uh, I'm just going to tell you a little bit because I don't want to give away the episode, but uh, there's a scene where somebody needs a part for a ship and they yeah. find it. And, and one of the characters is looking at it and says, oh, this is great. This is going to work great. It is the, the uh, kind of pipe that Luke tries to block the trash compactor with. <laughs> and, you know, I'm probably, well, because it's Star Wars, I'm, I, there's probably a few hundred people who was like, oh my God, that's the pipe that Luke used to try and stop the trash compactor. I mean, it's the same design. It might, it might not be the same. It might even be the same prop. Who knows? 